David Hershkovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of Light Culture in the remote hideaway upstate. My guest is Michael Alago, but uh, he may be better known to many people as who the fuck is that guy? That somewhat unflattering introduction is not my creation. It's actually the title of a movie based on his life that's currently on Netflix. If we don't know who the fuck is Michael Alago, why make a movie about him? Now, he wrote a book that answers that question. It's called I Am Michael Alago. So now we know his name, but why do we care about him? Well, it's not only because he signed Metallica and had a huge influence on bringing new music to New York in the 80s. He's also gay, of Puerto Rican descent, and survived AIDS. Not exactly a predictable profile of someone who would go on to make musical history and befriend legends like Patti Smith, Metallica, White Zombie, Cyndi Lauper, Johnny Rotten Leiden, and yes, even Nina Simone. The book, I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death, is coming out shortly, and it's a kind of a supplement to the movie. Michael, what does the book do that the movie doesn't? Oh, hi, David. Thank you for having me today. Well, you know, the documentary came out like in 2017. It's called Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. It's been wildly successful on Netflix. They just renewed it again till at least September 2020. Uh, It's on Netflix and Amazon Prime Video now. Cool. I wasn't thinking of writing a book But because of the success of the movie, a little company called Backbeat Books asked my agent, Lee Sobel, do I want to make a book? So I just thought, sure. But I have this crazy scatterbrain, and I only remember half my life from all the drink and the drugs. Thank God I kept journals from when I was 15 years old. And those journals were not creative writing. It wasn't any kind of poetry. It really was just a list of taking the B train from Brooklyn to Manhattan. This weekend is three nights of the dead boys and the damned at CBGB. Um, I have a friend who I'd known for over 30 years, Laura Davis Channon, who also wrote a book called The Girl in the Back. And she was very helpful in putting this book together for me. What is in there that wasn't in the movie? When Drew Stone wanted to make this film, I knew I didn't want it to just be about music. Because if you're going to spend a couple years with a director and a producer, it's just, you have to tell more about my life than just 25 years in the music business. So we talked about alcoholism and recovery. We talked about health issues like HIV and AIDS. And in the end, about just thriving in this life. And it's quite a story. I mean, the people that you knew and met and interacted with and partied with, 
that definitely is worth telling. You mentioned how you, as a kid, would come in from Brooklyn and escaping, knowing the feeling, what it was like to get out of Brooklyn into sure. Manhattan and what a dream that was. And so for you, was it more of like a fanboy thing starting out that you were just like enamored by some of these uh, musicians that you encountered? And how did you even hear the Dead Boys for the first time? I was always curious. I talk about it in my book at the very beginning that I believe I came out of the womb loving music. I watched a lot of television and a lot of those television shows like Don Kirshner's Midnight Special, uh, Don Cornelius' Soul Train, and Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Those three shows alone had such a wide variety of people from an Aretha Franklin to a David Bowie to a Todd Rundgren to a late night with Alice Cooper that my listening was informed by those wide variety of artists. I was only 13, 14, 15 years old. So maybe now I'm 15, 16, and I go visit my dad a lot on Saturdays in the East Village, Astor Place. He worked for IBM. There was a newsstand on that uh, corner right there on Lafayette. Which is still there, by the way. Yes, but it's a very different vibe (laughs) than back then. As we all know, everything was different back then. So I, um, I saw this newspaper that friends told me about called The Village Voice. It was a weekly, and it had music, art, theater, porn, and politics in it. I was not interested in politics, but I was certainly interested in all the other things going on in that publication. I had heard about CBGB. My friend Leslie took me there, I think in 75 or 76, I was 15 years old, and we saw Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. And that, I knew I had to be in that environment. So I checked out all of these uh, up and coming artists at CB's and Max's and on the rocks. But somehow you, you also, you know, had a personality that endeared you to the people you met because you were too young on your own to be admitted to a place oh, like sure. Max's. Oh, sure. Of course. I was, I was 15, 16. I looked like I was 12. And, you know, it was a very different time. You know that, David. I, wasn't getting carded anywhere. The one <laughs> yeah. thing I remember, Hilly Crystal always said to us underage young people was, you're welcome to come in CBs, but if I see you with alcohol in your hand, I'm going to throw you out for two weeks. So we also never let him see us with alcohol. We drink outside, we drink in the alleyway, and then come back in. So anything that sounded interesting to me in those weekly ads like suicide, like the dead boys, the damned. I just wanted to go see these people. Anybody with a scary name. Anybody with a scary name. (laughs) And you know, once I started hearing, seeing these bands, at one point, Hilly Crystal brought in a bunch of artists from the UK. He brought in Chelsea. He brought in X-Ray Specs. Eddie and the Hot Rods, The Damned. And, you know, my world was changing. The things that I was listening to, I was picking up first albums from the Ramones, uh, from the Patti Smith horses, from the uh, Dead Boys, The Damned, X-Ray Specs. 
There was someone I loved back in the day. Her name was Helen Wheels. She wrote for Blue Oyster Cult. She became a very good friend of mine. She was releasing independent records that were fantastic. So early on, I got to listen to a wide variety of music because I was curious and because I just enjoyed a wide variety of music. I know you're very open about being gay, and even back then you were as well. So what was it like to be a young gay boy, as you were at that time, on the scene in in New York, CBGBs and Max's and all that? Uh Uh-huh. Sometimes I felt like I was the only gay person there, and I think sometimes I was. But I think when you're that young, all those other young people who discovered those venues weren't judgmental. We were just all there by hook or crook, by train or bus or car. We just went to where the music was and we just loved the music. So that early on, there was really, I don't think, any judgment about your sexuality. But never mind that, you know, of course I loved all the strapping young men who I saw at these venues. I think one night when uh, Chelsea was here from the UK, I was drunk. Their lead singer, Gene October, was drunk. So I just dragged him home with me. These things happened all the time. Even with guys who said they were straight. I'd be like, honey, straight? What is straight? I have no idea. Let's go. So, you know, I don't know. I had these adventures where people, especially young men, said yes to me at a very early stage. I guess I was charming. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. And... uh and also knowledgeable, obviously, or you know, you knew about. Yes, the music. I learned a lot very quickly. I was a sponge. I wanted to know about everything music, and then I just started investigating all those bands. And then I picked up uh, newspapers like the NME, Sounds, Melody Maker, which now I'm hearing, seeing, and hearing everything that's going on in the UK. And then a little while later, my listening pleasures got to be a lot harder. And uh, I loved hard rock and heavy metal. So I was buying publications like uh, Kerrang. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I want to stay on this subject of, of being the only gay or were you really? Because it just seems like there's a lot of people who are gay to, that we know who were on the scene very much on the music side of it, you know, let's say a Jim Ferrat, for example. Sure, uh, sure. Who I'm sure you know, but I don't know if you encountered him. There was, you know, Howie Montag, and then a lot of other people uh, subsequently that you did work with, like a Jerry Brandt or Danny Fields and, you know, Seymour Stein. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it just seems like interesting to me that there, you know, this very important group of people who are also gay who were very instrumental in making the scene come alive. When I say I sometimes felt like I was the only gay on the scene, I was just a young fan from Brooklyn. I encountered those people a lot later, the beginning of the 80s. And my boss, Jerry Brandt, is not gay. But uh, Oh, he's not? Know. I'm sorry. No, 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 it's okay, was... Jerry. Sorry, Jerry. You're not gay. Darling, it's okay. I'm I'm not outing you. You know, there is no outing. Okay. Yeah. No. So later on, you know, I came in contact with uh, Jim Farratt when I went to Danceteria often. You know, Uh, Howie Montag and I would run into each other at four o'clock in the morning at the St. Mark's Vans. You know, Walter Lohr 
oh god i hope i'm not out outing walter lore no honey that queen he has a book out so he must say that he's gay if not then i'm telling you right now i think i brought him <laughs> home once or twice right. as well um so, breaking news breaking news <laughs> breaking news breaking news things that happened 30 years ago <laughs> You know, I met Danny Fields, who became a mentor to me in 1980 when I started working at the Ritz. And for a short period of time, he was our publicist. Now, early in the in the late 60s, early 70s, Danny had my same job at Electra. He was an A&R executive there. I think he also did publicity. He was responsible for signing the MC5 and the Stooges to Electra. And here we are. 39 years later, and Danny and I are still incredible friends. I adore Danny. He is absolutely brilliant. So um, a lot of those people, I wasn't seeking out other gay people. I was just interested in music. And, you know, I always tell people, I don't think I was ever in the closet. I had no idea what that meant. I just was myself. And people either liked me or they didn't like me, and I didn't care. I don't know where that all came from, that bravado. Maybe it was partially being naive. I, I don't know. I just uh, didn't have a care in the world when it came to uh, being homosexual. Well, you can't imagine you and Danny together. Right? Oh, honey, there are stories. <laughs> There's a great story in my book about loving Henry Rollins, which we won't tell your audience about because it's quite funny and you'll read about it in the book. Danny was on my show and was one of the most popular shows that well, was the most popular shows that we've had because. Oh, uh, well, Danny is brilliant. He knows how to tell an incredible story. He's sarcastic. He is funny and uh, he's marvelous. He really well, yeah. Is. I mean, imagine taking you two guys out of the equation. I mean, where would we be? today? Well, definitely not world. in the same place, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's incredible meeting Danny. And like I said, we're still friends. And uh, I remember back in the day when we weren't at the Ritz, we were at the Ninth Circle and various other gay bars back in the day. And I remember meeting a gentleman named Mike Kwashi back then who brought the limbo, that dance, the limbo to the United States. He was also a great friend of Jimi Hendrix. And Mike lived on Bedford Street and people like Lou Reed, and Jimi Hendrix would visit Mike Kwashi, who was gay, and since uh, in this last um, two years has passed on. He was brilliant, so funny, so camp, marvelous. In 1980, you were hired to work at the Ritz nightclub, which was in its time like a real advanced music venue, right? You would bring in the bands from England. It would be the first place you would hear many of the big acts or what sure. turned into big acts. So who were some of those that uh, you, you brought in? I knew from a very early age I wanted to be in music. I did not know what that meant. I didn't play an instrument. So I just thought, well, I, one day, I guess I'll be in the music business. I have no idea how. So I'm 19 years old right now. It's 1980. And I am going to the School of Visual Arts and working at a pharmacy in the East Village on Astor Place. So one day I was taking lunch. I was walking down East 11th Street and I saw this beautiful building that was previously called Casa Galicia. Then it became the Ritz. But I saw a sign, just like a white piece of paper, that said video club opening. A lot of young people may know this club as Webster Hall. I go inside. 
the building, I was amazed. It was decorated beautifully. It was Art Deco from like the 20s. And um, I'm just looking around and this gentleman in the balcony said, hey, kid, what can I do for you? We're not open yet. And I thought, well, I want to be in the music business. I'd like a job here. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, do you have a resume? I said, I do not have a resume. And I go to School of Visual Arts. And he found some humor in that. So he called me up to his office and we started talking about music. He liked me and he said, I'm going to give you a job. You're going to open my mail. You're going to get my lunch and you're going to answer my phone. And I thought, wow, I think I'm in the music business. And yeah, that was the very germ, the very beginning of me being in the music business. What was marvelous about the place was there was a 20 or 30 foot white screen in front of the stage. So we were getting all sorts of new betas and VHSs of artists of the day. Now, it's 1980 and it's the very beginning of MTV. So every record company wants us to play their video at the Ritz. We start booking people like Prince, the return of Tina Turner for five nights. I booked an infamous show with Public Image Limited. That was a debacle. It was May of 81. Well, let's stop for a minute and talk about that one because it was a debacle. I mean, but it was amazing, right? I was actually there for that show and it's become one of the legendary shows of all time because, I mean, as I read in your book, it was a cancellation of Bow Wow Wow that kind of got you scrambling to try to figure out what can I do? And Pill was in town. They were on a press junket for their record, Flowers of Romance. Right. And they weren't expecting to play anywhere, but yet you convinced them to come and do a show at the Ritz. But did you know at the time what the show was going to be like? Or Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I had never met John before. I just knew him from his previous career in the Sex Pistols. That one and only first album blew my mind. Every song is a fucking gem in, uh, on that record. It changed the face of music for many people then. Anyway, so Bow Wow Wow was supposed to play, sold out two nights. Malcolm McLaren called me and said, we're not coming. I said, why aren't you coming? He said, Annabella's mother doesn't want her coming to the United States because she's underage. I said, Malcolm, she was underage three months ago when you booked this show. So we will pay for her mother to come with her. He said, nah, I don't think we're coming. He was very nonchalant about it. And I was in a state of panic. I said, okay, by the way, send us back our 50% deposit. I don't ever remember the deposit coming back, of course. Mm -hmm. That sounds like Malcolm. Well, right, exactly. I had to think quickly. I don't remember how I found out that pill were up at Liz Rosenberg's office at Warner Brothers, but I made a phone call and I talked them into coming down to that afternoon to talk to me and Jerry and Danny Fields about a performance we needed them to do because Bow Wow Wow canceled. You know, they had no instruments. We rented a Profit Five for Keith Levine to program. And we thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. 
fantastic. Well, it was fantastic, but not in the way that I thought it was going to be. It's showtime. Uh, the screen is down. You still have no idea at this point. I have no, I know nothing except, oh, thank God I booked a show. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden we hear the introduction music to the song itself, Flowers of Romance. The screen is down. There are these beautiful, bright lights shining on the screen. So all we saw are these black silhouettes of people moving and gyrating and dancing. They were the musicians behind the screen. So let's say we're fast forwarding about, I don't know, 15 minutes. And the, the crowd is anxious. You know, the crowd is anxious because they want to see Johnny Rotten, who is now known as John Lydon, in action. They didn't want what they were getting, which was a bit of a, a form, I would guess, of performance art. They didn't want to come out from behind the screen. John starts taunting the audience. And probably about a good 18 minutes in, the audience was not having it. Beer cans, bottles start flying from the balcony to the stage. People are screaming. They are unhappy. I don't remember if chairs started flying, but I'm sure a couple of them did. And we have to stop the show. It was not going the way it was supposed to. And of course, we didn't want any of the young people, uh, the audience, our, our staff, security, anybody to get hurt. So it took a while to calm everybody down. The show did not go on, as <laughs> one would hope. And I went into the dressing room and they were laughing, they were nervous, they were unsure. We were all unsure, like, what just happened? <laughs> and we know what happened. It was a debacle. It didn't work. Of course, I wanted the show to happen the second night, but security and Jerry were not having it. You wanted to do it again? Oh, of course I did. Oh, my yeah. God. And hoping that it would turn into a concert, of course. That was May 1981. That was the beginning of a 39-year friendship with John Lydon. We're still friends, and we've never had a bad word with each other. He's in my documentary. I'm in his documentary. And um, it's just extraordinary. I think he's so brilliant. He's so lovable. He's so sarcastic. He's brilliant, John. And out of all that came that friendship. After the show, were you mad at him? Did you say anything? What was the reaction on your end? No, him? no. I think it was just this, what the F happened? And so we just kept drinking. There okay. were... Um, <laughs> There were illicit drugs being passed around. No, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were drugs being passed around the dressing room. I don't know if we forgot about what was happening. But, you know, I mean, everybody was just talking. Everybody was like, what the fuck just happened? We were drinking champagne. We were drugging. We were, people were smoking marijuana. It was a, just a crazy electric environment. And you wanted to do it again. Oh, yes, I did. I wanted to do it again in hopes that we could maybe do a real concert, but that wasn't going to happen. Jerry was furious with me. He was furious with the band. 
And it was a shout heard around the world. It was on late night news in New York. The next morning, Tim Summer wrote something, I believe, for Sounds. It was, uh, he was on the cover of Sounds. It was a feature in the other two British publications that we talked about earlier. It was this shot heard around the world, like, what the heck happened at the Ritz last night? And here we are in 2020 talking about it yeah. because it was really such an event. <laughs> right. Well, the band, you know, the band had carried so much baggage with it from the Sex Pistols. So, you know, I'm sure the fans were already kind of geared up no matter what you would have done. You know, there was going to be like outrageous reaction. Yes, because they wanted level. just pure, unadulterated rock and roll. And they didn't get any of that at all. Were you around with the Sid Vicious as well when he was at, you know, Max's at the end of his uh, life? Uh, at the end of his messy career. Yes, yeah. I was. I met Sid once or twice at CBGB. I was a regular at Max's at some point, friends with Peter Crowley who booked the room there. And Peter booked Sid for a couple nights. Yeah, and they were, it was just a mess. It was a mess, unfortunately. You know, this young person who was wild and full of promise just became a, a, a dirty alcoholic, a drug addict who was into cutting himself. Okay, yes, I did see Sid Vicious a few nights at Max's Kansas City. He was always with Nancy. Uh, they were always a mess. I don't even know how he got through some of those performances because he was always drugged up and filled with liquor. And it's just a sad story that uh, he lived such a very short life. But that's the only experience I had with uh, yeah. well, let's, uh, seeing yeah, let's and move. hearing Sid Vicious. Yeah, that, you know, that was like a, kind of, there was a big break there in your career and in your interest in music from that into something a little bit you you referenced earlier, like hard rock or heavy metal. Sure. It's a whole other scene. Mm -hmm. uh, you you talk about it in your film, L'Amour in Brooklyn, the club. Yep. And, you know, that seems like such a change for me, for you, because you were so hip, you know, sort of so on the hip side of what was happening in the music scene, mm -hmm. Village Voice and whatever, but I'm sure they didn't cover the heavy metal bands. And you sort of, on your own, were attracted and felt like that was something important, yet sure. not very hip at all, right? Uh, no, I wouldn't ever use the word hip when you say heavy metal, but that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't matter. That's a compliment uh, to them. Uh, okay, yes. So <laughs> I only lived seven blocks away from Lamore in Brooklyn under New Trick Avenue. So I would walk there and crawl back. Wait, um, excuse me. Before, uh, describe for our audience what Lamore was. Lamore was a, a, a rock club in Brooklyn that catered to hard rock and heavy metal. That was it. So you got to see in the early days, Metallica, Wasp, the Plasmatics. I think maybe even Merciful Fate might have played there. You know, I can't really tell you 
when I first started listening to heavy metal, although in the early days I had the first uh, Black Sabbath record, I uh, made my way to EJ Corvettes on Bay Parkway in Brooklyn and found the first Kiss album. My first concert was Alice Cooper, uh, June 3rd, 1973. I was 13 years old. So it just felt inevitable that my tastes were going to get darker and louder. But I never thought, like, was this hip or not? I just, again, I gravitated to another form of music. I just always wanted to be where the music was. Did I answer your question? Yes, you did, to some extent, because there was also hip-hop happening at the same time. And I don't know what your relationship to that is, because they don't I had zero relationship to hip-hop at the time. And the rap music? Zero. Is, is there any reason for that, or just it didn't tickle my ears? I just uh, I was listening to what I was listening to, and uh, there's only so much music one can take in in their young lifetime. So what I chose to do is I continued going to CBGB and Max's and all, all the clubs that catered to rock and roll. And what did your old friends say when you told them that you were you know into this kind of music and you wanted to work with these bands? Did they support you or did they think you were crazy or what? The friends that, that you, you know, hung out with that in these other places like Max? You know, I always was a person who went out alone. So I made, I made friends just along the way because I was always outgoing and friendly and stuff. So no, I don't think anybody ever wondered why Alago was going to see the Dead Boys and the Damned. And the next thing you know, he's at Lamore in Brooklyn listening to Wasp. Uh, for me, it was just uh, like a natural, gradual progression. I was always just open to all kinds of music. Exactly. And I guess that's a big point that comes out as well in your documentary. But when you talk to a variety of these different musicians that you wouldn't, you know, you, you see them looking a certain way, heavy metal dudes. But when you actually get to know them, you realize that there's much more to them, that they have a much broader interest in terms of their music and what they love, that music is the, the bottom line to everything. Oh, ab absolutely. At this point, you were working at, at a record label. Sure. I worked at the nightclub, The Ritz, from 1980 when it opened until 1983. I knew that there was more out there. I um, was going out with somebody named Mitchell Krasnow, and I talked to Mitchell about like what I thought or what I didn't know I wanted to do next. I just knew that there was more out there for me. So Mitchell said, my dad, Bob Krasnow, is leading Warner Brothers, and um, he's going to revamp Electra Records. Electra happened to have been in the crapper back then. So again, Mitchell got me an interview with his dad. Bob and I talked about all kinds of music. Bob was this art maven. So, you know, in Bob's office, there was a Robert Longo. You know, we started talking about the emerging East Village art scene because there were places like Gracie Mansion and Civilian Warfare and Patty Astor's Fun Gallery hosting all of these artists like a uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, a Keith Haring, a Robert Longo, a Richard Hambleton. So that was just like another thing that was added into the conversation. I waited two or three weeks and I got this call from Bob Krasnow that said, I'm going to hire you, and you're going to be in the A&R department. I was nervous. 
and grateful when I hung up the phone. I had no idea what A&R meant. <laughs> I knew a few people in the music business. So I had to call them and I said, I think I just got a job at Electro Records and I'm going to be in the A&R department. The problem is I have no idea what A&R meant. So they all laughed in my face, which was fine. And, um, you know, I soon find out A&R means artist in repertoire. Artist in repertoire is the most important department at a record company. Because if the A&R person doesn't know greatness, there's going to be a problem. I'm at Electra Records, which is part of Time Warner. And, you know, for them, it's about the bottom line. For me, I just want to make fabulous records and hope I do a good job. And your reaction to the music is, is visceral often, right? You sort all, of... All, all the time. If I didn't feel something from the music, whether it's the Dead Boys or Nina Simone, I didn't want to be bothered. And if other A&R people were talking about a certain band that they all thought, oh my God, this is going to be huge. If I heard it and didn't like it, I didn't give a shit about the band. I always conducted myself from a fan's point of view. And it was always just very personal for me that if I had to live with this band or singer-songwriter, I better love the music. I better respect the music. I better know how to discuss to Tracy Chapman these songs that she was about to record. I better know how to talk to John Lydon and that list goes on. You know, with Nina Simone, we always talked about the Great American Songbook. And I just had this knowledge of all these different types of music from listening and learning over the years. You were also like there at a sort of a, a moment, especially with the heavy metal, where this whole thing about selling out, you know, would their fans stay with them if they moved into a major label and you were working for major labels at that point so Correct. Uh, like metallica i believe was one of those bands right there was like so how did you what was your process in in terms of getting them to believe in you and trust you in order to go ahead and, and make these decisions i talk about metallica because signing them helped change the face of rock and roll exactly and that put me as a professional on the map. Remember, they're 21, 22 years old. I'm 24 years old. I look like them. I don't look corporate at all. I would always come to work in a Ramones t-shirt and jeans. And they liked that I knew about the same kind of music that they were playing. Now, they were on an independent label called Megaforce. Megaforce were up and coming. I didn't believe that they had the funds to take somebody like Metallica to the next level. So there was a deal struck where we bought Metallica out of their Megaforce contract. Uh, it was financially fabulous to everybody involved. So Megaforce walked away with their windfall, for lack of a better word, and we got Metallica. Metallica were confident in me, like I said, because I knew the same music they knew. And they knew a bit about the history of Electra. You know, when they came to my office for the first time, they wanted records from The Doors and the MC5 and The Stooges. Uh, we became friends and they trusted me as well. But 
they were so good at their job that they never wanted anybody in the studio with them. So I would get cassette tapes from Lars, the drummer, who I spoke to mostly at the beginning of their career. And I would just hear parts of songs that were arrangements, which were fabulous, even in those primitive stages of the material. A few times I was allowed into the studio, but I had to let them know if we were funding this very expensive record, I got to know what the hell's going on here. But they were, they were young people who were very focused. They always knew what they wanted to do. So at some point, I just let them do their thing. And their thing always wound up being extraordinary. Yes. Made my life a lot easier, too. Right. But you were smart enough to trust them and, and know that they would do it. They were serious enough. They weren't just going to go shit around in, no, in the no, studio. No. Even though it, at, in the early stages, people loved calling them alcoholica for the amount of alcohol <laughs> they consumed. They could have said that about me as well. But like I said, when I met them, I knew that they were young people who were very dedicated to their craft. I knew from hearing that first record that they knew what the heck they were doing. The first album that I actually worked with them on was the third album, Master of Puppets, which is leaps and bounds more mature than those first two records. But those first two albums are metal classics. Last time, or for the most recent time that I saw you, if you remember, you were in Tompkins Square Park with Moby and John Joseph. And Moby was shooting John for a, a vegan special or show that he was working sure. on. And you were there. And John Joseph, who I, I knew as well from back in the day, who was uh, in the Crow Mags and still is, I think they still perform. Right. But he has he, another... He has another band called Blood Clot. Which was his nickname, right? Blood Clot. That is correct. John was your friend now, and he appears in your documentary as well as someone, another person who adores you. His career has, and life has gone through such a huge transition. Mm -hmm. How do you, how does your relationship you know, tell me a little bit about that because today he's kind of a motivational speaker. Absolutely. He's a, he's a vegan. Mm -hmm. He's uh, inspiration to a lot of people. He's got sure. a huge uh, social media following. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about how you met him. And I love John evolved. Joseph with all my heart. I was a very big Cro-Mags fan from back in the day when Harley mostly fronted the band. So we're talking about the early 80s. I was riveted by their music. I loved the music. The music spoke to me. And at some point in the 80s, I met John. And we became fast friends. And fast forward now, yes, his life has gone through many, many changes. He is brilliant. He has books out. Like you said, he is a motivational speaker. And I have so much respect for where he was and where he is now. That day that you saw me in Washington Square Park is uh, because Tompkins. he had called me or I said, do you want to have lunch? He said, well, I'm going to be in Washington Square Park with Moby. He's Tompkins, in Tompkins Square, sorry. I knew that John was in Tompkins Square Park the day I saw him because I called and asked if he wanted to have lunch. He said, I'm being interviewed by Moby. 
And I thought, well, I'll just come by and snap a few pictures. You walked by, David, with your dog. Um, and I don't know where I'm going with this, except to say I've been great friends with John for over 30 years. He's been supportive of me in everything that I have done. He was thrilled, as I was, when I finally got clean and sober. He's so happy I don't eat meat. And I'm so happy because it was just screwing with my digestive tract. So uh, on all different levels, John and I are friends. And um, I was so pleased when he said yes to be in my documentary. Yeah, so that was great that you guys could both influence each other. Absolutely. And, you know, just a few minutes, I I don't want to overlook like some of the dark times because that's part of your story as well. Yes, indeed. They call you the hardest partier among the hardest party goers. And then Hello. you also <laughs> yes, and then you also got AIDS. Yes. And so, you know, there were some very difficult times for you. You said sure. you're sober now, so obviously at one time you weren't. How does coming out of that and surviving, what impact has that had on your subsequent life? Well, you know what? Thank God I didn't die. That's the first thing. If I did and all people knew about me was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it would have been a cliche. So I um I was out every night as an A&R person. I had a corporate card. So I paid for my drinks, your drinks, everybody's drinks. And drinking and, and drugs were fun until it wasn't fun anymore. And it turned on me. And the long and short of it is that uh, I got sober when I was 32. I went to rehab in Minneapolis uh, for a 30-day program. I came out and went back to work at Electra. The only reason I went is because I didn't want to get fired from my job, but I was unhappy. I was what they called a dry drunk. I didn't go to any meetings, so I didn't learn anything. I just had this crazy brain. But I was going to show you. I had no idea what I was going to show you. I just was arrogant, and I just didn't drink for eight years. And then fast forward, I'm 40 years old. I already know that I have HIV. So now at 40, someone I was out at a concert one night, and somebody asked me if I wanted a beer. I said yes. And the next seven years were gruesome. They were grueling. I had HIV. I was taking my meds with vodka and beer. I was, um, I found myself in crack dens in New Orleans. I don't know how I got there because in the morning I was in New York. Uh, Many a time I thought my heart was going to stop. So I ran to St. Vincent's emergency ward where I was hooked up to uh, IVs and heart monitors. And uh, I conducted my life like that for seven years and I thought it was okay, believe it or not. Wow. Sad, sad. Sad, but but happy ending. I'm very happy Well, thank God for happy ending. So at 47 years old, when I felt like I'm a friggin' zombie, I had known about uh, 12-step meetings. And uh, it was Sunday, October 21st, 2007. I took a shower. And I knew there was a meeting in uh, the West Village. And I took myself to a meeting. And um, even in that first meeting, as much as I was hurting, as much as I was fearful and had shame for even walking through the doors of a 12-step meeting, I did it. And it spoke to me. I decided, you know what? I'm sick and tired of my behavior. 
And I just wound up staying in the rooms. Uh, some people go to AA, NA, OA, GA. There's an A for everybody out there. So I chose to go to AA. And um, I still go to meetings five days a week at nine o'clock in the morning. And uh, that one hour sets my mind right. I have a routine. I uh, make my bed. I have tea. I get on my knees and say my prayers. Sometimes there are some old Catholic prayers from when I was a, a youngster. Other prayers are just a series of thank yous to show my gratitude for my sobriety. And then I make my way to a meeting. And on the way, I say the serenity prayer. So by the time I get there, I'm already filled with the goodness and the knowledge that this is what I need to do and what I want to do with my life now. So now, like I said, here we are in 2020. I'm coming up on 13 years clean and sober, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm a responsible man who shows up for life. I, I show up for you. I show up for this interview. I show up for friends and family. And what a blessing that is that people know they can rely on me. That's something. That is. And, and you have an amazing story. And uh, it's so great that you could share it with us. And I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you so very much. Oh, thank Michael you, David. Alana. I really appreciate this. And, you know, it's funny, you and I never really met prior, no, not really. <laughs> prior to that day in the park. <laughs> I know, but I always knew about you. Oh, so me I know too. it's weird. Same guy right? gotcha. Okay, man. Thank Hope you so much. Hope to see you soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs>